Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths faithful volunteer and dramatist Leslie Fort. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Christ Followers Bible Study, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 4. We'll be starting at verse 23. Thousands have come to accept Christ by the apostles, and we'll be starting in 23 talking about the apostles' prayer for boldness as they continue to spread the good news of Jesus. Let's open with a word of prayer. Thanks, Lord, uh, so much for allowing us to come to study uh, your word, uh, to uh, become disciples uh, of your word so that we can show the light of Jesus Christ to one and all. And we thank you for Mark and his leadership here in our study and bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, good evening, Mark. Good evening, Tom. It's good to be back with everyone. We have been looking at at the book of Acts with uh, a couple of themes in mind, one being the fulfillment of all of God's promises to Israel, culminating in the recreation of Israel as a spiritual assembly instead of a physical nation. And kind of parallel to that, we're seeing a second exodus just as God's people were, well, they weren't even his people, really. They were drawn out of Egypt with great signs and wonders. And then they had a a 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness before they could enter into the promised land. We've seen how that, that promised land actually represented God's ultimate intention, which was to create this spiritual nation, the restored kingdom of Israel and it it, instead of uh, representing real estate or geography it was really representing an eternal state of of fellowship and family with God this was the city that Abraham uh, looked for we learn in Hebrews chapter 11 and so we're seeing all of this coming about uh, this this kingdom of God is being born with signs and wonders, and then will, as we will see, some pain here to bring about God's ultimate purpose. So we'll resume here in Acts 4, verse 23, and let's uh, read down through verse 31, please. After being released, the two went back to their own people and told them what the priests and elders had said. All raised their voices in prayer to God 
on hearing the story. Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, you have said by the Holy Spirit through the lips of our father David, your servant, why did the Gentiles rage? The people conspire in folly. The kings of the earth were aligned. The princes gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Indeed, they gathered in this very city against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, in league with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. They have brought about the very things which in your powerful providence you planned long ago. But now, O Lord, look at the threats they are leveling against us. Grant to your servants, even as they speak your words, complete assurance by stretching forth your hand in cures and signs and wonders to be worked in the name of Jesus, your holy servant. The place where they were gathered shook as they prayed. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak God's word with confidence. Great, thank you. So the the, uh, the apostles, or Peter and John in this case, uh, were spared punishment on this instance because the man that they had healed was known to so many tens of thousands of Judeans from throughout the world since he had uh, parked himself at the gate into the temple courtyard. Uh, all these people would have seen him when they came up to go to the temple for the feast days three times a year however many times they could make the journey so that there was a whole multitude that was aware of what had, had happened and this made it politically inexpedient for the priests and the Sanhedrin to administer any punishment to Peter and John so they were released after being threatened and then they went and found the disciples of course the, you know they grown to five to eight thousand people at this point but they probably still had kind of their core group of the original 120 and they were eager to pass on what had occurred to the assembly there and all of the disciples offered praise to God when they heard about this and they quoted here the uh, second psalm about the nations raging and the people's imagining or thinking vain things. Now, the, it mentions kings of the earth. Now, the King James translators translate this word earth, and it it's very misleading because they weren't they certainly weren't envisioning a sphere orbiting in uh, space when they uh, said this. This comes from the root word meaning a clump of dirt and I think it's better translated in most instances the land rather than the earth because it's it's talking about their land, the land that they know. And we'll see later in the book of Acts, the people is how the Judeans thought of themselves, which is not you know, uncommon. The, the French still view themselves as the people. <laughs> Apache means the people. So they were the people dwelling in the land. And so the kings of the land set themselves in array. The rulers were gathered together. So this would refer to the Sanhedrin, the priests, Herods, and the Roman 
uh, authorities and so on is all all kind of uh, lumped together here in this prophecy that David uttered there that's found in the second Psalms. And of course, they've, they viewed this as being fulfilled uh, right there and then at that time. And, you know, we just, we saw Peter stating just a day or two before in his address that all of the prophets from Samuel onward spoke of these days to Peter, which is those days to us, the days of Peter and John uh, there. And this is uh, very critical to understand because as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see a systematic fulfillment of prophecy after prophecy from the Hebrew scriptures particularly those that are pertain to the promised restoration of Israel uh, in the last days. So they're praising God for this fulfillment, and th- then they they just boldly tell us, you know, how this is fulfilled, how Psalms 2 is fulfilled through Herod and Pontius Pilate with the nations and the people of Israel had gathered together to uh, fight against God. And they asked for boldness to continue to speak out against all the threats and that they might continue to do the signs and wonders that Jesus had done in his body. Now he was doing these signs and wonders through them who had become his body on earth. And as they prayed for strength to continue on with this work, then they they received this shaking to confirm that this was in fact, the will of God that they would continue to speak the word with boldness. And so, so far, so good here. Uh, things are going uh, pretty good at this point. Further comments or questions on this paragraph? No, but I think this prayer for boldness can be uh, something that we can all think about because we sure do need that. And uh, it's uh, difficult to do. It's difficult to be bold in the, in the climates that we're in. Yes, yeah, so true. I, I met with a friend of mine in Bakersfield this past week, and uh, you know he was saying that the only thing that's going to bring people back to God in this country is a major economic collapse. We're too wealthy and prosperous, and uh, most people just can't be bothered. And, and uh, it, we live in interesting times that call for uh, this boldness. There's so many things that need to be said and people are starting to get scared and and perhaps starting to listen all right let's uh, read verses 32 down through 35 please the community of believers were of one heart and one mind none of them ever claimed anything as his own rather everything was held in common with power the apostles bore witness to the resurrection of the lord jesus and great respect was paid to them all. Nor was there anyone needy among them, for all who owned property or houses sold them and donated the proceeds. They used to lay them at the feet of the apostles to be distributed to everyone according to his need. All right, thank you. Okay, so this is the paragraph that communists use to claim that Christians should be communists. But uh, let's look at it and see if that's really what it's saying here. Now, this community of believers, later on, the word church is used to describe them. But in the Hebrew scriptures, uh, this idea is expressed 
usually by the word congregation, and it really meant the assembly of God's people. And mm-hmm. church is, is really a bad, bad uh, translation of this. Here it says multitude or community. Community is much better, community or congregation, and, and because that's what we're seeing here. This was a new family. This was God's mm-hmm. new family. Physical Israel had been God's family before, but they, of course, rejected him over and over, and they answered his love with scorn and indifference. So here this new family has one heart and one soul, and this this could be considered a, a fulfillment of the prophet Ezekiel, where he said, I will cut the stony heart from their flesh and give them a new heart. Uh, this is exactly what's happening here. This this is the body of Christ, so this body should have the heart of Christ and the mind of Christ and the spirit of Christ uh, in them, and they should be uh, unified. So we see them acting here like a family, and most families do hold things in common. I guess there's modern families that the husband and wife keep everything separate, you know, and maintain separate names and separate checking accounts and so on. But a true family will hold everything in common. And so this is this is supposed to be the true family of God now. And, you know, they don't there's no government involved in this, obviously, which is the fundamental difference between this and any form of totalitarianism or communism. It's a free will. Well, yeah, it's it's a family that Voluntary. love each other. Yeah, they love each other, and they're taking care of each other. They're they're in unusual circumstances. A lot of them don't didn't live there, but they've they've stayed because they had come to observe the feast of Pentecost, and now they're they're staying so that they can learn everything they can about Jesus Christ and the restoration of the kingdom from the original 120. And the apostles are bearing witness. You know, there's a, there's still probably a large crowd in town that hasn't uh, dispersed yet. They are uh, probably still talking to the Judeans who have gathered from out of town. And then, they're again, they're probably also sharing with the new believers about what the resurrection of Jesus means and so on. And it says much grace rested on them all. And grace fundamentally doesn't mean unmerited favor. We get that, you know, from reading the New Testament, again, without the Old Testament context. But grace fundamentally means the loveliness of God's character. And and so if, you, if you've been grafted into God's family, if you've been grafted into the body of Christ, the loveliness of his character is also resting on them all. The spirit is resting on them, the loveliness of character. And, of course, that does involve unmerited favor in in great measure, but it involves a lot more than that fundamentally, to be Christ-like, to follow Christ. Well, Mark, I think the reason it's hard for us to uh, think of this in our own context is that our own churches aren't this way. If our church, if we went to our church and they said, no, we'd like everyone to sell everything and bring it all down here and we will administer it for you and, and, and 
share this, and we will, and we're all united in our common purpose. Therefore, uh, trust us. Think that we would all look around and say, "Are we really united in a common purpose?" And and can we really trust our clergy and the people who are running our ecclesia uh, to uh, to do this? And uh, it would make it uh, more difficult to be. I think uh, the the response would be much different. Oh yeah, I and so certainly we agree. have to think about the the situation that they were in. They had a very clear understanding of what their purpose and mission was and who their leaders were and that they were really God's people who they were looking to. Yeah, even I mean, that, uh, even that would be prior to Constantine, the believers were home-based family units and after Constantine, they became institutions and you had clergy and and all that thing that has lingered all the way down to this present day, 1,700 years of institutionalized religion, which is totally supplanted and rooted out the the family of God. So we do have a long way to go. We to, do have uh, some semblance of this that shows up briefly in some of the missions that go on where people do you know, really amazing things. They go to jail together and they do all kinds of things in, a, in an effort to carry out a, a, a very specific uh, God-oriented purpose. So those, those those things do happen, but we just don't see them in our churches. Well, right. There are a lot of movements back in this direction, and you just don't hear about them because they're not led by charismatic figures with six-figure salaries. They're you know led by volunteers who kind of serve as the head of the family and usually host these things in their own home. You hear about them occasionally when some city or county tries to write them up for zoning violations when their family gets too big because they are a a loving, caring community of believers. That happened here in Phoenix not too long ago. Uh, They they were meeting in a house, and somebody complained because the cars supposedly were on the street, but the city got involved and restricted their activity. So it does happen. Oh, yeah. And it's been happening off and on for 15 or 20 years. I can just say that these home-based fellowships are are growing uh, much more rapidly than most of the institutional churches uh, in the land. And that's probably a really good thing. Of course, they come in all flavors. You probably have some dispensational home groups and, you know, every other variety under the sun as well. Sure do. Yes, you do. Well, I, I consider myself a Christian communitarian, a world Christian communitarian. I like the word communitarian myself, uh, which is derived from the community of believers. So I just wanted to bring that up for a second. Good for you. I got that from another book, uh, but it, 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 I think it's a good word, communitarian. It's a yeah, well, that's well, an, uh, you know, group of believers. Well, it is Go hard ahead. to picture ourselves uh, in that kind of a in that kind of a group. We just don't have we just don't have those kind of groups in our churches. Yeah, nice. well, I met uh, with a home group for five years in Bakersfield, and uh, I mean, we would have uh, probably given the shirts off our back for the other people in it. It just you just become a lot closer knit than you do 
sitting in pews staring at the back of somebody's head. You know, you sit in a circle in the living room, you know, and you have, you know, it's much less formal and you're, you're, you're interacting with each other the whole time that you're together. Not, you're not just spectators in theater seating. I mean, you know, you don't bond too well with other people at the movie theater. So why would you bond very well with people in a church auditorium listening to a paid orator? You know, it just, it's not conducive. Yeah, not without popcorn. Yeah. Right, yeah, okay. not conducive at all. <laughs> so they did have unusual circumstances, uh, and they were going to get more unusual here shortly. Now, why would people who owned land or houses in the area, what would be a, another reason that they might not hesitate to sell their real estate? You mentioned this last week about the coming coming disaster that they knew that was foretold from the Old Testament or from the Hebrew writings. Well, yeah, I mean, what did John the Baptist... The property market? Yeah, you know, John the Baptist started out saying the, the roots laid bare, you know, this fire is being kindled, and then Jesus basically told them that the whole city was going to be utterly destroyed, you know, before... Before he was executed, he tells the women who are weeping for him, you know, weep for yourselves and and your children mm-hmm. because this city is going to be utterly destroyed. So, and we'll see a little bit later in Acts that uh, Stephen just comes right out and says this. He's accused of threatening ill will on the temple, and uh, he pretty much lets them know that it's something's going to happen pretty soon. So the property values within one generation, we're probably going to take a drastic downturn. That's not the reason, you know, that they sold it, but, you know, it would make it a little bit easier to give up the family homestead if you knew it was going to be burned to the ground and worthless, you know, within 40 years. So they were having a fire sale. Uh, yeah, more Yeah, more or less. <laughs> So they, they were selling the Jerusalem area real estate, and land prices were apparently pretty good because they were they were able to feed these thousands of people who were, you know, away from home, away from their normal livelihood, and so on and so forth. And uh, the apostles were apparently attempting to administer this here at the beginning. Is there any indication of how long this lasted? Was it until the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D.? Or... No, well, just we'll a see, matter we'll, of a... but we'll, we'll see specifically that they're all scattered uh, once Stephen is uh, stoned. Martyred, yeah, okay. And that's not too far off here. Okay, well, let's. Um, we got two more verses here, verses thirty-six and thirty-seven. That adds right on to this. There was a certain Levite from Cyprus named Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas meaning son of encouragement, he sold a farm that he owned and made a donation of the money, laying it at the apostles' feet. All right, thank you. Mm-hmm. So uh, Barnabas will figure in later in the book, but his real name was Joseph, which of course was a super common uh, name amongst Israelites, since Joseph is one of the most exemplary characters in all of biblical or redemptive history but bar in the aramaic meant son of so john 
and and his brother uh James are called uh bar what is it uh sons of thunder is is an example of this kind of uh hebraism where you're you're if you're really caught up in a certain idea or or a passion well then they would call you the son of that and so Joseph here apparently really liked to encourage people to the extent that they gave him this nickname Barnabas probably is more how it would be pronounced we just run it together Barnabas but uh, bar means son of so he got he gets this other name so he was a levite his family belonged to Cyprus so again we have these Judeans that have been scattered all over the Roman world who had been reassembled here and interestingly enough under the law of Moses priests and levites were not allowed to own property but here is a levite selling property <laughs> his whole family would have been levites uh, presumably mm. and uh, yet they still had uh, a field near Jerusalem that he was able to sell apparently this uh, prohibition on the priests owning real estate had uh, faded by the wayside sometime in the past uh, by the first century most of the the upper priestly families were uh, quite wealthy and quite accomplished real estate holders apparently which is another reason for God's plan to bring about something else yeah 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 but you know if you if you look at the typological implications you know they couldn't they weren't supposed to own land the other tribes own land but it was supposed to always stay in the family you couldn't sell it you could lease it out until the year of jubilee and then it reverted back to your family if you died without having children your brother was supposed to raise up an heir for you to inherit the land so that you would always have an inheritance in in the land and of course uh, this would typify the fact that the family of god will always have an inheritance in the new jerusalem which is a place in God's presence forever and ever and ever. And you, you'll never lose that that inheritance. But when you go and try, as the dispensationalists do, and you try to say that the fulfillment of these spiritual type or, or physical types is another physical piece of real estate, it just confuses the issue incredibly and makes absolutely uh, no sense at all. Okay, so anyway, Barnabas here, the point is he set a high standard with this very generous act here. He set a very high standard, which rolls us right into the next paragraph, uh, chapter 5 down through verse 6. Chapter 5. Another man named Ananias and his wife, Sapphira, likewise sold a piece of property with the connivance of his wife, he put aside a part of the proceeds for himself. The rest he took and laid at the feet of the apostles. Peter exclaimed, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart so as to make you lie to the Holy Spirit and keep for yourself some of the proceeds from that field? Was it not yours so long as it remained unsold? Even when you sold it, was not the money still yours? How could you ever concoct such a scheme? 
you have lied not to man, but to God. At the sound of these words, Ananias fell dead. Great fear came upon all who later heard of it. Some of the young men came forward, wrapped up the body, and carried it out for burial. All right, thank you. So this is a disturbing to many Christians, to many scholars. Uh, this this seems uh, really out of place and harsh here that um, these two new believers would, uh, well, the one just in this paragraph, Ananias, would receive such a great punishment for uh, telling a fib uh, here. Uh, there's a few things that are interesting about it. This is a direct parallel to the story of Achan back in the book of Joshua. As God's people are entering the promised land, they have a great victory at Jericho, which was a mighty walled city, and then they go up against a, a very small town, and they're utterly defeated, and they, they just don't understand it. And God reveals that it's because somebody had uh, disobeyed at the conquest of Jericho. Everything was supposed to be you know, gathered up, and I can't remember if it was destroyed or, or given to God. But uh, anyway, this, this guy Achan kept back part of the spoil for himself, just like Ananias here kept back part of the of the proceeds of the land. And so uh, the very, very parallel stories. Uh, Luke's intentionally trying to draw the similarities between the first exodus and the second exodus here. These also are in all likelihood the first two believers to physically die after the day of Pentecost. And I never really thought of that before. But, you know, they, they're being taught that Jesus has conquered death and death is being done away with and seeing a believer die is probably uh, quite a shock because they were probably in their mind thinking of physical death being abolished. But it's not physical death that Jesus came to abolish. I mean, have any of y'all known of anyone who died in your lifetimes? Physically? Well, yes. <laughs> yeah. So you see, if Jesus' ministry and the apostles' ministry was about abolishing physical death or physical disease even, you see, it was a complete and utter failure. But so often as we see, people fail to understand the intentional contrast between the physical and the spiritual. So Jesus conquered spiritual death, but physical death would continue. So uh, this this little narrative here uh, probably uh, shocked the believers into realizing that physical death was still with them and that Christ's work was spiritual in nature, not physical. And, of course, this is the great lesson that all the dispensationalists in our day still need to uh, learn, unfortunately. But there was sin in the camp. Remember, repentance was called for on the day of Pentecost in Peter's sermon on Acts 2, turning away from the old ways 
the the ways of Israel had become quite corrupt by this time, and so here's a here's a symptom that that the repentance was not uh, done sincerely, and it was met with a quite drastic and immediate punishment. Do we don't know if they went to heaven or not? Do we? Did it, was this implied that they were denied an entrance in, into the kingdom of God, or we don't know that? Uh, no, we don't know that. Before. Now, a a hardcore Calvinist will tell you immediately that these were not true believers, and you know that they will that they are burning in hell forever. But mm-hmm. we, you know, we just don't know that. After all, those whom God loves, he chastises. This would be the most extreme. There's no judgment here as far as where they went after that. That's true. Yeah. And again, you know, we have every we have every evidence that they were true believers. But it, to follow the strict uh, hyper-Calvinist paradigm, no true believer could ever commit a sin like this. So therefore, they were never a true believer. They were just... Uh, oh false believer that was in the assembly as you know as all assemblies have so uh it's a little bit of circular uh, logic there just a it's a completely different paradigm so calvinist calvinism says that all backsliders are hell bound right well and that they were never christians to begin with they hold themselves to a very high standard of perfection it seems well, and there's a lot of variation in there, but uh, the you know a, a true believer can have a multitude of sins covered, an infinite amount of sins covered, even murder, and cannot be ever lost. So it, it's really a double standard. But somebody that falls away from the church, or is struck dead, or something like this, well, then that's just a sign that they were never a true believer uh, to begin with. Under the system we refer to as Calvinism, and is to be separated from what we follow uh, here, just for the benefit of the listeners. Yeah, at Reformed theology has a lot of really good, accurate biblical points in it. Calvinism is a is a subset of Reformed theology, and hyper Calvinism is a subset of that, um, and high. A lot of our differences with Calvinism are really semantic, but hyper-Calvinists, you know, go really far with it. Uh, I guess you'd call them determinists, and there is no role for free will uh, anywhere. And And in fact, it is impossible for a human being to have free will or to exercise free will. So there are there are degrees uh, there as well. Okay, Maybe the, the word for this is discipline. God was disciplining his body uh, for for the lie, you know, in the early church. Yeah, well, just like the whole discipline. body had been disciplined for the sin of Achan. You know, they all paid a mm-hmm. really high price for that. And then uh, mm-hmm. Achan's entire family were, uh, were executed and uh, buried, or the earth swallowed them up. Anyway, they met with a horrible mm-hmm. end. As well, and then, yeah. then the people of God were able to resume their their possession of the land. So we get this out of the way, and then the people of God are able to 
resume their establishment of the new Jerusalem, the new Zion. So in this story, we see, as we've already pointed out, that the believers were still going to physically die, that they were not perfect, sinless creatures, but they were still human beings uh, afflicted with all the maladies of humanity, uh, sin, disease, and death, and so on. But perhaps more more importantly, Luke is demonstrating the reality of the indwelling of God's Spirit in the body of believers, because the, his crime is not recognizing that. You see, if he thought he could fool God the, and the apostles, you know, he really didn't get the fact that the Spirit of God was in in them all and was tying them all together. And he was lying to the Holy Spirit, Peter said, and, and then, you know, he died. So Luke is demonstrating over and over again in the book the reality of God's Spirit being with and within uh, the community of believers. Okay, well, we'll finish up here with 7 through 11. Three hours later, Ananias' wife came in, unaware of what had happened. Peter said to her, Tell me, did you sell that piece of property for such and such an amount? She answered, Yes, that was the sum. Peter replied, How could you two scheme to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? The footsteps of the men who have just buried your husband can be heard at the door. They stand ready to carry you out, too. With that, she fell dead at his feet. The young men came in, found her dead, and carried her out for burial beside her husband. Great fear came on the whole church and all who heard of it. Very good, thank you. So, you know, again, the the wife was in on it, may have even put the husband up to it, you know. We don't know that either. <laughs> like even oh, Adam and Eve, huh? Yeah, that's right. okay. Yeah, you know, we, we don't know. But but, <laughs> but we do know that she was as culpable as he was here. And uh, Peter confirmed that and then, you know, just confronted her that they had agreed together to tempt the Spirit of God. So he pronounces a punishment on her, and she fell down and died. It was late spring, early summer, and it was probably quite warm, so they they didn't oh, keep the, the dead bodies around very long. They had already buried the husband, and now they came and carried her out and buried her as well. There's perhaps another little corollary that ties into some of our previous studies, and that is that in the old covenant, the community had to carry out these sentences with stones. You know, they had to stone, or if it was a priest's wife, they had to burn her. You know, they had to get involved in this. And, of course, they had to, when they displaced the nations, they had to take up weapons, and they had to butcher all the the pagans that were in the land before them. They had to clean the land of all of the pagan influence using carnal weapons. But we see here... I think it's notable that the the believers no longer had to get their hands dirty, uh, you know, with blood. 
and you know we had some good discussions and and talk on that 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 the weapons have changed the weapons are now spiritual in nature not carnal god doesn't expect his people to wage carnal warfare at all anymore he's going to take care of those details just as he did here in this case and it's up to us to have confidence that he he is wielding the sword in our place. We're expecting uh, to keep his mind, right? saith the Lord, I will repay. Yes. And, and, and Paul will actually quote that, referring to the Judeans who have been persecuting the true believers. You know, they didn't, they didn't fight back. They didn't gather up weapons and start, uh, you know, uh, assassinating the Sanhedrin at night or anything like that. They just waited endured it and left it up to God and God of course did come and he did wreak a horrible vengeance on these people who had been persecuting his new family all right any uh, any thoughts uh, my last thought is that right here it says great fear fell in the whole church this is that first time that this word ecclesia in the greek occurs in the book of acts and you know it's it's very poorly translated uh, church if we go to the greek old testament then this word we can see ecclesia would have been translated congregation of the community of believers and church is you know in the english denotes uh, a church building i think to most people but yeah. it's not it's not a real yeah. good it's just not a real good word it's really not a word at all in the English language other than to describe uh, either the, the assembly building or the community of believers. And, and when, when God, you know, inspired this, what was really being talked about was the community of believers. And they had great uh, fear and awe. There was fear and awe on the community of believers over the, these twin deaths of Ananias and Sapphira. Okay, well, I guess that's a good point to stop. And thanks again, Mark, for the study. And thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening in to our Bible study. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tell a friend about our podcast. And please visit our website, whtt.org. You will find a wealth of information and resources like the latest Pharisee Watch and unheralded news articles. Also, you can order our new video, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Even though this video is copyrighted, we don't mind if you copy it, as long as you copy all of it. Then you can educate your friends and acquaintances about the dangers of Christian Zionism. Start small, think big, and press on toward the straight gate.